Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome listeners to the first installment in our Back to the Future movie review series. This is your co-host Corbin. And I'm Alan. And this series is not one that I feel needs too much of an introduction because it's uh, one of those things where it's just kind of become a Hollywood classic by this point. Uh, Back to the Future, especially the first one, is definitely a movie that caught the world by storm when it came out and has ceased to die since the day it came out. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Back to the Future or what it was nearly called Spaceman from Pluto. Yep. We will talk about that here in just a minute. But yeah, absolutely. It was a major blockbuster when it first came out in July 3rd of 1985. And by the way, this July will be the film's 35th anniversary. That's true. So as you probably already know, this movie is directed by Robert Zemeckis and is kind of the child of Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, who is one of the leading, who's the writer, credited as a writer, and I do believe he was also a producer. Uh, this all came about, and let's see here, it would have been, I think, before the 80s, where Bob Gale was wondering what it would be like if he and his father would be friends if they attended the same high school. And then from there, it kind of spun out of control. And Zemeckis had, Zemeckis had the idea of like a mom claiming to be very innocent when she was when she was in high school, but in reality she was not. And so they had the idea. Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis gave the idea to Columbia, and they said, "Give us a script." But then that was later dropped because uh, there were some legal issues. So outside of that, there the idea of the time machine was originally going to be a fridge. Oh yeah, the refrigerator. <laughs> yes, but and they were gonna in which. They were going to have to have a fridge and it would need to use the power of an atomic explosion like that scene at the Nevada test site to time travel, which when that did not come about, as we all know, we end up using a DeLorean. But this idea of a fridge and the in the Nevada test site would eventually come back in uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which we have talked about uh, a while back. So that was the original idea. And originally, Michael J. Fox was, he was going to be the main character. But then because of his uh, role in Family Ties and because there was an actress who was on that show who would take a leave because she got pregnant, they they didn't want to let Marty McFly, they want to let Michael J. Fox go. So they went, with, they went with another guy called Eric Stoltz. And it was pretty clear, not very long after they began filming, that Eric Stoltz didn't really fit the role of Marty McFly very well or at least how they had envisioned it. So luckily to them, the actress who went on leave for Family Ties came back, which then kind of freed up Michael J. Fox to have some time to film Back to the Future. So what happened for the next uh, while was Michael J. Fox would film Family Ties during the day, film Back to the Future at night, and get about five hours of sleep, then repeat this process over again. And then on the weekends, he would film pretty much all Back to the Future. Um, and surprisingly enough, the filming for this movie went for a hundred days, which is crazy to think about because I think, uh, I think a couple weeks ago before this podcast, we talked about Cresha, which was filmed in nine days. So <laughs> it's kind of funny to think about that. You know, this movie took an astronomical amount of time compared to some other movies. Yeah. Looking at the production history of this movie, it probably shouldn't have happened. It probably shouldn't have occurred, nor should it have probably have have been as well received as it has been just because of all of these issues that they encountered. Right. And yeah, like Alan was saying, it was co-written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. They both have the same first name. Bob technically is Robert. And I found it really interesting because I've heard Robert Zemeckis name come up a lot, especially within the context of 
Steven Spielberg. Right. Well, it just so happened that Gail and Zemeckis hadn't really done much before this film. They wrote um, and Zemeckis directed I Want to Hold Your Hand, which Steven Spielberg executive produced. The next year, they wrote 1941, which Spielberg directed. And then the following year after that, they wrote Used Cars, which Zemeckis also directed and Spielberg executive produced. None of those films had been financially successful. So they were worried about Back to the Future. And like Alan said, they originally brought it to Columbia. But through watching the Blu-ray special features, they said that Columbia one of the reasons Columbia didn't accept it, initially they really liked it, but then Columbia was going more towards more raunchy films at this point. The PG-13 rating had just been debuted in 1984, so they felt like they could get away with more stuff. And um, National Lampoons, we just reviewed Christmas Vacation. All of those Lampoon movies were coming out around in the 80s as well. And so Columbia turned them down. So and a ton of other studios turned them down as well. And it was funny because um, Gail was saying in an interview, they brought this movie to Disney. Right. And Disney said, what? We can't make this movie. It talks about incest. Yep. A, a boy and his mom and a car and possibly kissing. And like, what kind of sick movie is this? No way. So Steven Spielberg, who had his production company, Amblin Entertainment, he partnered with Universal Pictures, and he believed in these two. And this was this was uh, Zemeckis and Gale's make or break. Now, Zemeckis has gone on to do a ton of other famous stuff. Oh, yeah. Gale's really only done one. He directed one film starring Gary Oldman, uh, Oscar winner Gary Oldman. I don't know. I haven't seen it. It's on Prime right now. Mm. Um, but this was kind of their make or break moment in clearly it boosted it just launched their careers into the stratosphere oh absolutely yeah they after this movie robert zemeckis kind of became a more well-known director and as you were just mentioned he would go on to do a lot more things bob gale a different story but especially robert zemeckis went on to do many many more things in, in hollywood because of back to the future i also found it very interesting that they not only wanted Michael J. Fox initially, but they couldn't get him. And yeah, he was doing family ties, but he was also um, in the middle of shooting Teen Wolf. That's right. Yeah. And he, he recounted in an interview how he was like, dang it, I'm doing this kind of dumb movie about a teenage werewolf and Spielberg is over here. Like, I want you in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I can't do it. He's like, I am. I'm literally my plate is full. I yeah. can't, well, figuratively, his plate was full. But uh, also, two of the other major producers for this film were, surprise, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, who produce every Spielberg film. And Kathleen Kennedy is the head of Star Wars right now. So they had their hands in this uh, as well. But yeah, also, they originally didn't, consider Christopher Lloyd for the role. They originally wanted John Lithgow. That's right. To play this role, which he probably could have done a decent job in this role as well. But yeah, Christopher Lloyd is pretty unbeatable, I'd say. Right. Yeah. Christopher Lloyd at the time too, his he wasn't nearly as popular as John Lithgow. His career is also relatively new as well because he really got his start with One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest in 1975. That was what really launched his career. Yeah. Um, so it's not a surprise that he was not the first pick for Dr. Emmett Brown, but I would say given the kind of actor that he is and the kind of character he portrays, I it would be interesting to see what John Lithgow would have done. But at this point is kind of uh, unreplaceable with with uh, Christopher Lloyd as Dr. Emmett Brown. Another reason they probably considered Eric Stoltz instead of Michael J. Fox is because he had just starred opposite Leah Thompson in The Wildlife, which just came out the year before. And then they would co-star again two years later in the John Hughes film, Some Kind of Wonderful. So he already had that on-screen chemistry with Leah Thompson, who would play his mom. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really fascinates me is they shot for five weeks with Stoltz. Yeah, they shot and a lot of scenes. 
they did shoot a lot. If you own the Blu-ray, you can see some of those scenes. Or if you look them up online, they're available as well. Not many scenes, but mm. I think it'd be really interesting if they could compile all of the footage they at least have. And I'd love to watch that because I've never seen any of the scenes with audio, just the video. Yeah, I've definitely seen the scenes with audio, I believe. Um, I think there was some... you No, it was the... Uh, there's a documentary that was... I watched it on Netflix and it might still be there on Back to the Future. Um, and they had parts of these scenes that were in there. And so I did get to see some of this. It's very different. It's very different from the Martin McFly that we know from Michael J. Fox. He feels m more akin to uh, what I would say is kind of a mixture between like Andrew Garfield and um, what's his name? Uh, Crispin Glover. It's very, uh, very strange yeah. uh, seeing that portrayal of Marty versus the, the Marty that we know from Michael J. Fox. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't even realize that for five weeks this movie was going with Stoltz, but uh, Zemeckis and Gale, they liked him as an actor, but they just felt his comedic timing yep. and even his ability to act like a teenager wasn't hitting the mark. Right. So once they realized Fox was done with Teen Wolf, and like you said... His schedule with family ties eased up a bit. Gail said they went back to the producers and they really begged him. They're like, please let us use Fox for this movie. And I'm just thinking, how nice would that be to be that in demand mm -hmm. as an actor? And a so very, a relatively new actor, too. Well, he was very young. He was 23 mm -hmm. um, during the filming of this movie. And yeah, Kathleen Kennedy said that they had a station wagon where they put, you know, all the seats down in the back. And they put a bed back there. So when Fox was done shooting Family Ties, he would sleep on his drive to the set of Back to the Future. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's really crazy uh, how that all worked out. And it's even crazier that Zemeckis went to Universal and he's like, so yeah, you know those five weeks of shooting? We're going to need to do that again with Michael J. Fox this time. That That's very unheard of to do at a film to reshoot large segments of the, of the movie with the new actor. Right, right, yeah. And I know that they knew, I think it was Zemeckis and um, Spielberg, they knew it would cost them an extra three million, but they went ahead and asked for it oh, wow. um, to get the reshots, the reshoots done. So, yeah, but yes. I mean, either way, we still got a film that is very, very influential and is so engraved in the culture at this point. Um, so it's no, it, it's surprising, like you said, that this movie even came out because of all the issues that it had just getting produced and getting finished. It's not something, it's not always something that had issues during pre-production like we hear about all the time where they just get stuck in development. This is more of something that just getting it finished, getting to a finished state in the perfect way was a bit of a rocky road. There was, so when the idea was changed for using a refrigerator, uh, or using sorry, the DeLorean instead of a refrigerator, um, as I mentioned earlier, Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg was kind of scared that kids would yes. lock themselves in the refrigerator, right? Yes. It's funny because later on, uh, after this movie came out, there's a couple there's a couple scenes inside of the movie where you see Marty McFly sketching um, on the on the main street, which is sketching is essentially where your height your it's sketching is a uh, amalgamation of two words skate and hitchhiking where you grab onto a car and oh, yeah. you hitchhike when you're skateboarding, right? So Marty McFly, uh, Michael J. Fox had to make public service announcements telling kids not to do this because kids were beginning to emulate what he did in the movie. So I thought that was yeah. kind of funny. It is funny. There is some of that behavior in this movie that, especially because it is a PG film mm -hmm. and I'm guessing it could have been rated PG-13. They could have submitted it to the MPAA in time to get that PG-13. But I guess I'm guessing because the rating was still relatively new and this is relatively tame compared to some PG-13 movies today, mm -hmm. uh, it probably did secure that PG rating. And the content's really not that bad. I would just say don't let your younger kids watch some of it because there is probably some upsetting scenes and language right. used in it. But, you know, when your kids are probably like, Pre-teens going into the teenage era. Right. Fine, oh, yeah. yeah. 
I know for me, when I first watched this movie, it was my mom was away. I think she was on a business trip at the time, if I remember correctly. Um, so it was just me, my brother and my dad. I don't know where my sister was, but my dad had, I guess, recorded the entire trilogy on our old TiVo. And he's Ooh. like, boys, this weekend without mom, we're going to watch <laughs> Back to the Future, which we had, at this point we had never seen before. And we're like, OK, dad. And so we watched the entire trilogy by, with me and my dad and, and my brother uh, over a weekend. And I remember this one scene in particular. It was the scene when uh, Biff hops in the car with uh, with Leah Thompson's character. And I had to fast forward that one scene Ooh. because he yeah. knew he knew, you know, that what there isn't a lot that's shown, but, you know, there's enough. It's so. that I always find that to be even today still like a very upsetting scene yeah. to th thankfully they don't show anything, but I think leaving it up to our imagination may be worse because that's a very troubling scene, very disturbing scene to to go through. Right. And it's funny also because the uh, actor who plays Biff, um, when I was watching interviews, they said he and I, I knew this was going to be the case. It always is. He's just the complete opposite in real life. Yep. He's just this really gentle, really kind, caring person. Yep, that's how it always is. That's how it always, that's is. How it always is. So actually, uh, another fun fact I have here, uh, the character who plays Skinhead, you know, the guy who goes, this guy's wearing a black preserver. Thor thinks he's going to drown. Yeah. That was the original cast of Biff. He was originally going to play really? Biff. But they thought that he wouldn't look as good as another actor would who actually ended up playing Biff against Marty McFly oh. when they were shooting. So they swapped out his character. Oh, yeah. Biff is like this big, beefy hunk of meat dummy. Yeah. <laughs> who is intimidating, but he's got the IQ of a tree mm -hmm. and just doesn't really get it. But Biff is, I, I would say, like, honestly, everybody does have very iconic roles. Oh, very yes. distinctive, memorable roles, which I think is a great achievement also Absolutely. for the film. Absolutely. Well, I guess we can get into a few numbers here uh, for the box office. So this had a budget of $19 million and adjusted for inflation, that's about $45.4 So that's a pretty decent budget, even by today's standards. Um, opening weekend got $11.2 million, which is $26.8 in today's money, which is not too bad. Domestically, it got $212.6 million, um, adjusted to be $506.76 million. Uh, foreign market, 173.3 million, adjusted to be 414.3 million, with a worldwide total of 385.5 million or 921.5 million. So, getting pretty close to a billion dollars if you adjusted if you adjusted for inflation. So, it did very well in the box office, which is no surprise. It, oh yeah, it did great. And uh, did you happen to get the numbers for the second week? Not for the. Not for week two, no, but I do have its initial opening weekend. Because I know Bob Gale kept saying that he was just blown away because it did good in its first week, but it did even better in its second week. I believe it that. actually it made more money than the first week, which is not very common. I right. would say usually on the second week, if the movie is good, it will make comparable numbers with a slight drop. If it's awful, then you'll have some crazy drop. Usually it doesn't um, go up, but I think um, this movie had an incredible word of mouth um, presence to it also. And also a very intriguing premise about a teenager tri time traveling mm. back to when their parents were a teenager. Now, who hasn't thought of that? Who hasn't wondered what your parents would be like when when they were a teenager? I know even before I even saw this movie, I thought of I thought it would be fun to bring a modern day video game console, which to me would have been a Nintendo 64 at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and go back in time and just show up at my dad's house one day and just like play video games with him. <laughs> um, introduce him to something he could have never conceived before. Now. I don't think that would have worked. I don't think it had the proper RCA plugins uh, yeah, for it that. to work. <laughs> but you don't have to think about that. And that's also another appeal to this movie is this isn't 
interstellar where we're we're going to get into the gravity theory and of time travel and whatnot it's really meant to just be a very exciting fun adventure oh yeah and that definitely reflects in its numbers in the box office because from week one it was number one for week one all the way up until its 13th week in the box office it only dropped once it dropped in its fourth week um, when National Lampoon's European Vacation came out for its first yeah. week. But it very quickly overtook that the week after and stayed number one until its 13th week when it finally dropped to number two. Um, also, Team Wolf came out about halfway through um, its run and stayed right behind Back <laughs> to the Future as number two in the box office oh, for wow. a while. That's so, fascinating. Yeah, so it did very, very well in the box office. My guess is if the head of Universal at the time would have gotten his way, and because like I said earlier, he wanted to name this film Spaceman from Pluto, which if you look at the kids' comic in 1955, it says uh, zombie spaceman from Pluto, something like that. Mm-hmm. This movie would not have done as well. And no, that doesn't roll off the tongue. Yeah, Spaceman from Pluto. 35 years later, yeah, like, gosh, man, that Spaceman from Pluto movie just, it sounds like a cheap 1950s, you know, science fiction serial or something like that. Um, Yeah, and Zemeckis told Spielberg, he's like, you have to stop him. This cannot be changed to the title. Because apparently the head of Universal was like, back to the future like that's an oxymoron that doesn't make any sense yeah nobody's going to see this confusing film ah oh oh dear and this is why we this is why uh studio executives should not interfere (laughs) (laughs) exactly who would have guessed this movie was going to go on to the upcoming oscars to receive four nominations oh yeah yeah did very also did a pretty good oscar run as well I'm sure they were really surprised. Their movie got four Oscar noms, and it did win. It won for Best Sound Effects Editing. Makes sense. Um, of course, this is pretty cool. Zemeckis and Gale went on to be nominated for Best Original Screenplay, and then the other two were Best Sound and Best Original Song by Huey Lewis and the News, The Power of Love. Yep. I did notice the it has some really good scores. Yeah. From IMDb and the other um, critics. That's right. Yeah, it's got like a 8.5 on IMDb. Yeah, on IMDb, it has an incredible 8.5, which very, is very, very high. Very high. And um, it on the IMDb Top 250, this is considered the 37th greatest film of all time. Yeah, that's not going anywhere. That's not very going anywhere. high. Up. No, no, very high up on the list. It will not be continually pushed back. Just as I've noticed the Terminator movie, I was looking at the list the other day, it, it's getting close to being pushed off. Hmm. Uh, this is another 80s movie that, like the Terminator, will not be pushed off, though. Yep. Um, 96% certified fresh critic approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, just overwhelming. And of course, from the fans, from the audience score, 94%. And for the meta score, the Metacritic score, an 87 which is not easy to achieve Mm-mm. on Metacritic. Um, there's no cinema score for this movie yet, but there is cinema scores for part two and part three, and we'll talk about that in right. those episodes. And I'm also seeing here a 4.2 for Letterboxd, which is still yeah. very, very good. Very good. Very high. Yes. Okay, well, is it time for a plot summary? It is. So, listeners, if you have not seen Back to the Future, which... Where have you been? <laughs> yeah, um, yes. Unless you're young, then I'm going to cut you some slack. If you haven't seen it, then absolutely go out and watch Back to the Future right now. I want I don't want this movie spoiled for you. I want you to enjoy it for the very first time. Once you have watched it, come back to the podcast here. Click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Marty McFly is your typical teenage kid who's friends with a crazy scientist named Doc Brown. One day... Dr. Brown tells Marty to meet him at the town mall. Marty shows up and Doc shows off his latest invention, a time machine made made out of a DeLorean. After a successful test drive, surprising himself that it actually worked, Doc hops into the DeLorean to head into the future, but a couple of Libyan terrorists chase Doc down and kill him, leaving Marty to fend for himself. 
Marty hops in the time machine, and before he knows it, he blasts back to 1955. Unable to start the vehicle back up, Marty heads to Doc's old house, but not before saving George McFly, Marty's father, from being hit by a car driven by Sam Baines, Lorraine's father, who was Marty's mother. What Marty has accidentally done has taken his father's place in time, where his parents were originally supposed to fall in love due to the situation with George. Marty has to get his parents back together before he can head back home to 1985 when lightning hits the clock tower. Otherwise, Marty is stuck in 1955 forever. On the night of the dance, George and Marty make a plan, which is foiled by Biff, the school bully. But George pulls through and knocks Biff out, saving Lorraine in the process. George and Lorraine fall in love that on that night, and all Marty needs to do now is get back home. Back at Doc's weather experiment, a branch a branch catches the cable attached to the wind vane atop the clock tower. Marty hops in the DeLorean as Doc climbs up to repair the cable, hooking it back together just at the right moment as Marty speeds down Main Street and lightning strikes the clock tower, sending 1.21 gigawatts of straight into the DeLorean, sending Marty back into 1985. Since Marty wrote Doc a note warning him about the future, Doc survives being shot by the Libyans in an alternate 1985. Marty heads back home to find that things in this in this alternate reality are not quite the same as he left them. Dad is a successful author, his brother has a steady job, and his sister has several boyfriends. Marty also owns a sleek, or the sleek, 4x4, which he wanted in the opening, and is just about to take Jennifer out for a drive before being interrupted by Doc, who slams through their driveway, telling them that their future is in danger, as they fly away, yes, fly, into the future as credits roll. I gotta say, I just love that ending. That is such a is such an exciting ending, especially in the history of cinema, Yeah, where you think all's well that ends well, and then of course Doc, no time has passed for him. And he just comes, well, I mean, I guess Marty goes to bed that night, but then he comes back right. the next morning. And I love how the title is kind of used twice because when you think about it, it's kind of a, kind of those weird conundrum type titles back to the future. Right. And so when Marty is in the past, he has to go back to the future. And then when Doc, he says, Doc, Doc, but where, where do we have to go? And he says, why back to the future? And I love that, uh, just that line, just how that kind of like comes back upon itself and they have to jump in there and they have to go off on to their uh-huh. next adventure. So it's a great way to end the movie. But I also think the opening of this film is very memorable as well. Oh, yeah. Where it's that one tracking shot of all of the clocks that are all at the same time. Right. And I know Alan and I both... Um, watched the blu-ray of this which i highly recommend i own the uh 25th anniversary trilogy i think i do too yeah i believe there's like a 30th anniversary trilogy maybe they'll put out a 35th this year i don't know but i've got it right here in front of me and it is just chocked full of extras oh yeah i know there are the blu-ray of this movie and i would assume the next two i haven't looked at it yet are just chock full there's so much extra special features in this blu-ray it's ridiculous it feels it's kind of like a scott pilgrim versus the world where there's just so many special features the blu-ray is there's you can't fit anything else on that blu-ray oh no no and yes thankfully part two and part three have pretty much all of the same exact stuff it's cool because um the commentaries for this movie they did the exact same commentaries or the people recording the commentaries for the next two films as well so I did listen to both commentaries, not in their entirety, though. You do learn a lot, but they do have basically their own documentary on here called Tales from the Future, mm-hmm. and they carry those documentaries through the next two films as well. You will learn everything you wanted to know yeah. about the making of that movie, and that's where they do show the Eric Stoltz footage as well within those um, documentaries here on the on the extras. and. They do have some deleted scenes that are rightfully deleted. Yeah, most of the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray are pretty much just scenes that already exist in the movie, but are just extended. Um, like the Darth Vader scene was very much extended in the deleted scenes was one example. But yeah, no, the, the they're really interesting to look at uh, to see what more of Back to the Future actually is out there. That was in the movie at one point, but had been taken out, which in some ways is probably a good thing because what I, I think the pacing of this movie is so tight and is so well done 
that yes. anything extra would really just bog it down. Oh yeah, the pacing is fantastic, and um, that was one of that was probably like one of my biggest compliments of yeah. this movie is they, they come up with kind of this ticking clock, ticking. You know, they have a time plot structure mm. where some movies do use this, where you've got time on the clock and you really have to race the clock to achieve your goal. This movie is able to achieve that while still giving itself enough time to breathe while still keeping a very tight pace where you don't feel like there's any blow. There's no fat or extra on this movie at all. Oh yeah. And I like that there's kind of this constant sense of urgency where Marty's like, I'm going to vanish. I might be stuck here forever. And then I might disappear myself, but it's still a very fun adventure. Oh yeah. You know, this is I th in my mind, one of the best paced movies ever because it's one of those films where you can sit down to watch it. And next thing you know, because of how enjoyable it is and how good the pacing is, you wouldn't know that 30 minutes went by. Like I was looking when I was watching it for this podcast, I didn't realize that uh, I was halfway through the movie until I deposited to do something else um, and saw that I was halfway through the movie. It felt like maybe 10 minutes because of how not just how fast it is, but just how smooth this movie plays out. It's really, really well done. The pacing of this movie is, one again, one of the best I've ever seen. Yeah, and if you have seen this movie a lot, like Alan and I both have, then I recommend if you have picked up the Blu-ray. I know this time around we both watched it with the U-Control feature, mm -hmm. which has the trivia track, and for once the trivia track was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the last time we brought up a trivia track was with The Happening, I believe. Yep. Yep, that was one I tried watching with the trivia track, and you can listen to what I have to say, but it was pretty much worthless. Yep, the exact same, my experience with uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2. Ah, yes. Worthless trivia track. This trivia track I actually found to be very insightful, mm -hmm. and the setups and payoffs, I think that would be great for more of a casual fan. It really doesn't um, require much interruption in the movie. It's very cleverly written how it's saying notice this or hmm maybe that's not a coincidence right and then it talks about it later on the one that i think most people probably know at this point is in the beginning it's twin pines mall yep but then when he comes back it's lone pine mall so that's something that i also really do love about this movie one of my other praises is the creative tidbits um there's a scene in the beginning where there's a clock and there's a man kind of hanging by the clock mm -hmm. and then it also shows Doc is going to shoot the Libyans with his pistol and it shows Doc will re will bring that pistol back in part three. It'll be the same pistol. Yeah, there. And for the most part, uh, there are a lot of repeats between steps and payoffs and the trivia track. That is um, true. They do say uh, there are a, a couple of a few things in there that are in both. But yeah, though, they're both very insightful. I would say that setups and payoffs would be one who's probably for a person who's probably only seen the trilogy through one time. Um, I think that would be beneficial for them to check that out and see how, I guess, connected everything in this trilogy actually is. Like how many things are set up here, but then they will come back not just once, but maybe multiple times in the, in the, uh, in the entirety of the trilogy. And that's one of the compliments. And this is one of the things I've heard about, uh, just this first Back to the Future, just in general, um, is that if you want to watch, if you want a great example of great writing, great writing, run just writing 101 for a film, and you, you would want to watch Back to the Future because that's this is a movie where it sets everything up in the beginning, and then by the end, it's paid pretty much everything that it set up is paid it all off. Uh, it's very much a writing 101 for screenplay and script writing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They do a fantastic job of like Alan said, setting everything up and not really dropping anything for the third act, which can be very frustrating. If you really pay close attention to certain movies, they have a very sloppy three act structure mm. that doesn't always pay off. And I can't help but just think of when we're talking about pacing, plot structure and setting things up. I just watched it chapter two, which you can read my review over on Letterboxd. And that is an example of what not to do of how not to pace a film and how not to set things up and then drop them. And it wastes the audience time. You don't want to waste your audience time and feel like they're being cheated or the wolves being, uh, the rugs being pulled out from under them. Right. Is what I'm trying to say. And this is a great film for that. And then the thing is you always have fun watching it. Even if you've seen it a lot, 
you're going to have fun with these characters and you can tell they're enjoying it. The movie enjoys just the story like enjoys itself. It's never too serious, but at the same time, there's always this serious outcome of a possibility, which mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah, yeah. This is a movie where it has such a personality to it that I feel like that's probably one of the biggest things that makes this movie as popular and as strong as it actually is. There is a personality to Back to the Future. Um, and that's one thing that I think keeps drawing me back to it. And one reason why I, I love it so much, why I have such nostalgia for it, is because the movie itself feels like a character in itself. Not like a story about such characters, but is also a character as well that plays along with its own story. It's a movie where it feels like it almost writes itself because of how smooth it goes along all of its events. And so watching it, yeah, watching it, it's kind of like a breath of fresh air at some points because of how well the pacing is and how nicely everything kind of fit, everything kind of fits together. In some ways, this is like the perfect Hollywood movie. Even for those who want to look deeper into the film, there are also just smaller tidbits here and there of things that they set up in the beginning that will eventually become something that happens in the end. The one example is in the beginning, you see like a man who's hanging on a clock. And then at the very end, we know Doc hangs on the clock as he's trying to fix the cable to get Marty back to 1985. It's just small things like that, or even smaller details as well exist in this whole movie that make it more enjoyable to watch just looking out for those small details. Oh yeah, and one of the other things I thought was funny is on Marty's nightstand, he has a reference quarterly magazine, which is used by librarians. And why would a teenage boy have that? The set decorator just thought the magazine looked cool and threw that in there. <laughs> but still today, Zemeckis says that they get letters from librarians saying, what is the significance of Mar a teenage boy Marty? Like, why is he interested in, in reference quarterly? That's funny. Um, just little, little things like that, that does, I would say, makes this movie probably endlessly rewatchable if you want to continually look for new things, uh, which I think also lends to the fun and excitement and enjoyability of what else is going to be in this movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, as perfect as this movie seems to be, I is not without fault, I would say. And I think most of my problems with this movie do come up here in the opening. And most of our problems still are rather small. Um, for example, the opening... It's not weak, but I do feel that it's not very subtle, um, mostly with the character <laughs> of Jennifer. Um, there's a line in this movie where, actually, I think it's one of her introductory lines, um, where she finds Marty outside the school after he's late. And she's like, no, Marty, don't come in this way. Doc Mr. Strickland's coming down the hall or whatever. And she goes, if, you, she, if he kisses you again, this will be your third party this week. You know, like, it's things like that. Again, it's a rather small nitpick. But it is something that I feel uh, is worth critiquing uh, for a movie like this who that has, as we mentioned earlier, pretty strong setup and payoffs does have does a, maybe just a product of its times is not as subtle as maybe it once was. Yeah, and I would say, although I really do enjoy all of the setups and payoffs at the same time, it's, a lot of them are just completely on the nose. Yeah. Or I would say almost a little too set up, like Marty sees a brand new truck being delivered in his old life and he wants it. So voila, he has it in his new life. I don't know. It makes it, it's all fun. It's like I said, you're not really meant to take this very seriously. Right. But I could see that being a bit of an issue where they have to pay off everything in such an obvious way, I would say. Um, and that's what I would say probably... Um, my biggest criticism comes in and it's really one that I'm really not that concerned about. If you, like Alan said, if you want to get nitpicky and allow that to really bother you, then I would say go ahead. But if you understand what this movie is and what they're trying to do, then you're really just supposed to have fun with it mm -hmm. and not um, critique it in that sort of fashion or get into the time travel elements of it. So guess what? Time travel is not real. So right. It it ultimately doesn't matter right. in that capacity. Um, you mentioned that the film in itself is a character. And the other thing that we should absolutely bring up also is the DeLorean itself yeah. being a character. Um, that car hasn't been in production for 
many years. It, I think it went out of production not many years after this movie was done. Mm -hmm. um, but that car has become iconic in our cultural zeitgeist oh, yes. just because of this movie, just because thankfully they didn't choose a frigid air <laughs> and <laughs> instead they chose the DeLorean, which has a very unique with its uh, gold wing doors. And um, a lot of these choices I thought was interesting. Um, They're trying to uh, homage the Time Machine film um, was a sci-fi film from the earlier days. Uh, I do like it. I did think it was funny, though, that the creators and Michael J. Fox hated the car, oh, hated really? using the car. That's funny. Yeah, it, um, they said they liked it for the unique look, but the cabin is so tight. And especially because they put their own like time machine equipment in there, they couldn't fit a camera in there. So what they had to do, they had three DeLoreans for the film. One of them they had to cut in half and shove the camera down in there behind it and then like solder it back together in order to achieve the shots um, looking through the windshield. And Michael J. Fox also said that he couldn't shift gears in the car. He couldn't move around without banging up his hands because there just wasn't enough room to move around. He's like, so my hands were cut up by the time I was done filming this movie. And uh, I just found that really hilarious that this car that everybody loves and adores, they're like, oh, gosh, that car was the, the bane of our existence shooting on set. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, too, because, yeah, that car has a lot of junk inside of it. And it's mostly just for, uh, for set purposes. But, yeah, no, that the DeLorean has this DeLorean from this movie has definitely become a huge pop culture icon in and of itself because of this movie like and yeah you're right it is kind of funny that uh it's probably a good thing they didn't use a refrigerator to make a dime machine out of and actually went with something that was a bit more cool and a bit more 80s which is a delorean uh good luck finding one of those on the street th today because there were only i think like 8500 in total that were made and that was back in the 80s so yeah good luck finding one of those yeah shockingly i saw one driving really on the on the interstate um in my town uh per, i think it was an earlier 2019 i couldn't believe it because i had of course never seen one and i'm like <gasps> yeah. oh my gosh look what's coming up that's funny um so the other thing that i know has been a criticism towards this film that i never really considered i guess but it's probably i guess something worth talking about is in the end of the film just because Biff learned to stand up to his bully, that means that he was able to be a much more confident man in life. He decided to write a book because Marty came to him as Darth Vader. And you can see that on the cover of his book and whatnot. But you see that they're living in the same house, but they just have BMWs, the latest trucks. They have fancy furniture, mm -hmm. fancy items in their house. So I knew some... Uh, critics outside of the United States said that uh, probably jealous of how great we were doing in the 80s because <laughs> none of the American critics worried about this. But they're basically saying that um, being wealthy and successful equals happiness. Mm -hmm. And that's that is what we are portrayed at the end is that none of these people are happy. But they become happy once they become more so wealthy. And I don't think that's completely the case. I think also it's they're able to follow their dream and their passion and instill in their kids a lot more self-confidence and drive to ambition, I should say. And then, of course, following that, they could afford nicer things. I don't really know why they're still living in that house if they're driving BMWs and have a super fancy house. Anyways, getting off in the weeds there. I don't know, Alan, what do you think of that? I think what the thing, I think what we're seeing here is this movie is portraying more or less the American dream, right? Uh, living in a fancy house, uh, having luxurious things. It's very much an American dream movie, right? So I can kind of see why foreign critics would not be as keen seeing this portrayal at the, at the very end uh, because they live in a much different culture than what we do, uh, especially for the 80s. So in my mind, uh, I don't really mind it too much. In reality, this movie is rather simple 
with every conflict that it brings up, uh, there isn't really a lot of subtext to it. So me seeing at the end, you know, the family has a lot more wealth and is able to purchase more luxurious things is not necessarily a critique in my mind think and saying that, uh, oh, yeah, all you care about is money and money is the thing that's going to make you happy. I don't really see that in this movie, mostly because there really isn't, I would say, much here that would elicit uh, it to me thinking, it would elicit me to think that movie's going to go down that path because it's already pretty simple already. Uh, so I just see it more as just the American dream, which is we, which would be the reason why I think it would be so successful is because of this is a very this is a very American movie. So seeing this ending just makes sense. And of course, it's 1985 where Ronald Reagan is president. Mm -hmm. And that is the time in modern American history where we've had the greatest economic growth and success. So portraying it in such a way would make sense. I right. would think. Right. Now, originally, this film was going to have a different climax. That's right. And even a bit of a different ending as well. Um, on the Blu-ray special features, you can watch. It's just a storyboard. I recommend watching it with, um, I think, I don't know. It's either Zemeckis or Gale. They give commentary to it. Um, did you watch it, Alan? I did see the storyboard. I didn't see it with the commentary. Okay. Yeah. So really, all that happens is... The whole clock tower was not going to be a pivotal part of the movie. But I think they changed it because of necessity as well. Um, let me explain the ending here before I get too far off into why the clock tower is so pivotal. So originally what they're going to do is go to, as we've kind of brought up before, they're going to go to Nevada to the nuclear testing facility where they test bombs. And um, it shows basically Marty is going to just drive into the nuke town and uh, the uh, people in charge think it's the communists attempting to infiltrate the facility. So they sit, so they drop the bomb early and then that determines maybe Marty won't have enough time to get there in time. Anyways, the nuclear fallout is rushing towards his car, the nuclear blast, and that gives him the one point. 21 gigawatts whatever it is to shoot back into uh the future and then the car um zips into there and uh it kind of like has some after effects and puts everybody's hair on in from static electricity and it was supposed to be funny but this alone is going to cost one million dollars right. so it was scrapped and the premise of the clock tower was incorporated right yeah i did read that they were this ending they were going to have it originally it was all storyboarded out but then it was going to cost them too much money so they went the clock tower route the reason they did more so incorporate the clock tower sequence was not just because of money but because they were going to rent out a small town oh yeah and not right. use the universal back lot and they're like this is going to be crazy expensive not just to buy out the shops for the time we needed to be and basically shut down the town but also because they had to transform it from the 80s to the 50s so being able to use that studio backlot really worked well because it saved them a ton of money and they were easily able to transform a lot of that from 80s to 50s uh, from a production standpoint. Right. Yeah, I heard that they actually started with the 50s scenes first and they were able to trash it for the 80s scenes after that. Oh, wow. <laughs> so. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. And I got to say, I am surprised this wasn't nominated for... If not best production design, then maybe at least best costume design because I think yeah. their costumes are are great. Yeah, I'm. I want. It's possible that in 1985 they didn't really have. They may not have had a costume design award yet. I don't know. I don't but know that. Either. That might have been it. Hmm. I don't know. I gotta say, I do really prefer the ending that we have mm -hmm. and how a lot of events are based around this. Times Square and there's the whole save the clock tower and we come to learn why it's broken and lightning striking the clock tower and they have to do this like Rube Goldberg machine in order to go back in time. Right. Maybe it won't work. Okay. So uh, I guess both of these, these next two criticisms I have kind of go hand in hand in a certain way. Um, so there's a scene after uh, George knocks Biff out and then gets Lorraine. Um, 
there's a scene not long after that when Marty's playing the guitar and begins to disappear because his parents haven't kissed yet, where another kid uh, comes up and steals Lorraine from George. It's a really strange scene because Marty's like, no, you have to kiss her. And uh, George kind of begins to walk away and then decides not to not to do that and comes back and takes Lorraine back and then kisses her. It's kind of a strange scene to me. I don't really see too much of a significance outside of uh, get just building more suspense because Marty might, you know, die uh, if they don't actually get to kissing at the very end of, during prom or whatever. Um, I found that scene to be kind of strange and kind of out of place comparatively to the rest of the movie. Yeah, you find it out of place because of the bully and cutting in or because of the kissing? Not because of the kissing. I that That's fine. Um, I guess it's more of just it. the scene of building suspense because Marty's going to disappear and then having uh, the random kid who we haven't seen before uh, come up and well, steal his date and build suspense that way just feels kind of comparatively to the rest of the movie, which feels so smooth. This feels kind of out of place. Yeah. And it does because there is that cut scene earlier where um, the dad, Crispin Glover's character has to go, he goes and calls the operator in a phone booth yeah. outside of the gym to check the time. That's the kid that comes up and locks him in the phone booth. Right. And, we do briefly see him in the hallway when Marty first comes to the high school and they, he, he's one of the bullies, one of like three or four that's laughing mm -hmm. at him. And I've actually seen him in other movies, so I recognized him. But yeah, it does feel like after, after, um, George, yeah, I didn't remember his name there for a minute. After George defeats the biggest bully in the school, Biff, by slugging him. And then all of a sudden, I mean, I understand he's not. I would think he'd be on top of the world by that point. Really oh, yeah. Wouldn't take anything, but he just kind of sheepishly goes off. But then he kind of needs that confidence boost back up. It's, I would say, um, that is probably an unnecessary event to occur. They should have probably shifted that forward and then had maybe, um, Marty playing the guitar and, dis and realizing he is vanishing while, um, Biff and George are having the fight in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Move that to the parking lot. And then instead of kissing during the dance, literally have them kiss outside of the dance right after that. Have him slug Biff, pull her out of the car and say like, you know, I've been like wanting you this whole time and then gives her the kiss. Right. Maybe that could have been a cleaner setup instead of kind of having two similar scenarios and kind of elongating that. Right. Yeah. And again, it's not... No, that big of a deal. It's rather small, but that is one of the things that has always stuck out to me whenever I watch this movie is just that it's a really that really short sequence. But that leads into my next kind of thing I don't know don't really like about this movie is kind of with Lorraine's character in general. Um, but it's just it's funny to me that Lorraine and that Lorraine falls in love with George, like in once, like the minute he punches Biff, she immediately falls in love with him. And then, of course, after he kisses her, then it's downhill from there. But it just seems like, it just seems kind of funny uh, to have Lorraine's character fall in love with a character, uh, George, who she literally hasn't seen at all, doesn't know that he existed until like maybe like a day or two before. Um, and then all just immediately falls in love with him. Again, this is also getting kind of nitpicky here, but yeah. Yeah, I understand that. I don't know. I guess what we're seeing, we're supposed to understand is that she's a teenage girl who is quickly drawn away from certain things. Marty has been her savior. He's cute. He's very different. He's kind of the rebel without a cause, honestly, mm -hmm. throughout this movie. Whereas George is the peon that is a weakling. Well, that was Marty's whole idea is he's like, she wants a strong man that will stand up for her. And um, I'll be the one that will trash, trash my image of her. And uh, you will be her savior. You're going to stand up and slug him and you'll be awesome. And then I think she's just quickly drawn away from her. Her mind is quickly changed. Yeah. And I guess to reinforce it, he needs to stand up for her twice. 
because apparently she's the most sought after girl in school and he's the most bullied kid in school. Everything, yeah, like you're saying, is very kind of stereotypical, very black and white. I would say that's just the majority of what this movie is. Oh, yeah. Is there's really nothing nuanced in this movie. It's just very straight laced. But honestly, it probably works for the better because of it. Because if they got too captured up, too wrapped up in trying to figure out those little things, then it probably would have messed the whole story up and really probably would have taken the fun out of it. But I can definitely see from a realistic standpoint, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah, no, yeah, you, you think you get the nail on the head when you say the movie is not really nuanced. It's yeah, it's very much a. I mentioned this kind of. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, it's pretty basic when it comes to diving too deep into the emotions of all of our characters. Um, the women in this movie aren't exactly what we would be what would be considered to be role models today. They don't really do a whole lot in this movie, um, and the, that and that's the same with the men. The men are all the men, although they do more. They are also pretty bare bones in terms of what what makes their characters unique, um, or that are not just the stereotypical male. Um, so it is very much a product of the eighties, um, and so making this movie today would not fly at all. Um, but it's be because of its stance in pop culture and where it came from. This is what is in this movie is more accepted because, again, it's a product of the 80s and not something that's a product of the 2010s or now the 2020s. So I can see why some people might have an issue with it watching it now, not knowing the context. Uh, but yeah, there this movie in just kind of in general is, again, pretty basic. But at the same time, that's part of its charm. Yeah, it's part of its charm. It's also, we also have the time scenario that is always at the forefront of every scene. Marty is always in kind of a rush because he really doesn't have time to mess around with this stuff. All he knows is that by changing one event of pushing his dad out of the way, he has to undo his mistakes while still getting back saving his parents while getting back to the car just in time for the clock to strike and i think that creates in the audience they really the audience wants to see the parents get back together see marty saved see everything figured out they want to be able to cheer that on mm -hmm. and i think that's what also works for it as well also i would say these characters are very relatable in some way shape or form you know you can remember back there's always some kid that you didn't like there's some girl that you did like you know, maybe you ended up with her it kind of gives you nostalgia in that way. And I think everybody in high school wanted to be Marty. They wanted to be the cool kid. And it's not like he's even trying. He's just being himself. And but he's bringing skateboarding to their world. He rips their makeshift scooters apart and then that makes him awesome. And he does the sketching yeah. and defeats the boys. It just gives you something to root for. And I think that's also why that people love it so much. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very stereotypical, but at the same time, it's also rather broad. So it reaches a lot, a, a very broad audience, you know, this bad kid who does all these cool things. Um, and the reason why they decided to go for the 1950s is because the 1950s was the age when teenagers began to become a very big pop culture icon. The yes. teenagers at this time started to be the thing that kind of ran pop culture. Uh, so it makes sense for them to go back to the 1950s and compare it to the 1980s where, you know, suburbia, where there's a lot more a lot more suburban areas. People don't live in the city as much anymore. Teenagers are uh, very influential, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, we do see a lot of influences of, especially differences in time between the 50s and the 80s. But also it's just smart to go back to that time um, to make this kind of a story. And if you want a nuanced character drama that takes place in 1955, then you got to watch Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, they're clearly drawing a lot of imagery and insights from Rebel Without a, oh, yeah. without a Cause. Marty's got his white shirt rolled up and his jeans cuffed, and he's got that red jacket in that one scene, and he's Mr. Cool. Everybody loves him. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, this this is the lighthearted version of Rebel Without a Cause. And if you're looking for a movie that's very heavy on realistic time travel, as much as realistic as realistic as you can get, check out Primer. It's an indie film that 
is grounded very heavily in science. And that's a movie that I hear is uh, rather accurate, at least as accurate as you can get with a time travel movie. Hmm. So there you go. Well, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Back to the Future? Back to the Future for me is a very, and for probably many people listening to this podcast, a very nostalgic movie for me because I I still remember watching this on our old tube TV in our basement with my dad and my brother for the very first time and having to fast forward through all the commercials. Um, that still brings up all those childhood mem- childhood memories for me. And I still love this movie. I, I wouldn't buy the Blu-ray standalone unless I had the trilogy, um, which I ended up getting at Best Buy. It was, like, it was on sale. So I'm glad I have it. Yeah, this movie is definitely a very nostalgic movie for me, as it is for many people. And it's one that I can't help but once a, a scene begins, I can't help but continue to watch it until I force myself to pull away from it. Because, again, it's so well paced and has such a personality to it. And has and it's just so much fun to watch that it's, a to me, one of what I would consider to be what a perfect Hollywood movie would be like. I don't think it's perfect. But it's, in my view, one of what a perfect Hollywood movie would be like if there, if everyone existed. So, yeah, if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Uh, watch it. It's it's fantastic. Uh, it's one of my it's it was for a long time one of my favorite movies of all time just because of how much nostalgia I had for it. So, yeah, at the end of the day, it's still a recommend for me. Got to give it a nine out of ten. Love this movie. Back to the Future, which will celebrate its 35th anniversary this year, is a blast and not just from the past. It's held up so well that it is recognized as the 37th greatest film of all time. That is an incredibly impressive feat, considering numerous major studios originally rejected it, and the writers and director hadn't done much in the way of film before. Filled with thrills, excitement of an intriguing premise of meeting your parents while they're trying not to jeopardize your own future, creates a memorable film that has captured so many imaginations. I always have fun watching this film and find something new every time. It's one of my favorites to watch every summer. Back to the Future is great. It receives 8 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. So next week is Back to the Future 2. And I'm honest, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I've i seen Back to the Future 2 again before after we watched it in the basement. But I haven't seen Back to the Future 3 since when we first At watched all? it. Oh. So I'm really curious to know where, what my... F- thoughts are on both of those because it has been a while since i've seen back to the future 2. i'm curious to see what it's going to be like what my thoughts are because i don't really know what they would be i'm curious to know my thoughts after reviewing this after watching this movie with the ssg goggles on we're going to do it with the next film i've watched the last time i watched it was on the day it was supposed to take place in Uh, 2015 that was fun i'll i'll talk about that with the review next week yes and yeah back to the future three i remember the very first time we tried to watch it and it didn't work but that is a story for the next few weeks (laughs) when we get there so listeners if you haven't already subscribed if you haven't already hit the like button or shared this episode with your friends and family it's a great one to watch with your parents or listen to i should say with your parents or with your grandparents especially those that grew up in the 50s uh, to hear their thoughts of what it was like as a teenager you could have your own kind of marty mcfly experience like that as well so alan thank you for joining me sure thing all right listeners we're very excited i'm looking forward to joining you next week when we go back to the future part two Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below.
Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.